Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Roy McNamara joins us today to introduce us to two of Italy's unique music festivals, the Puccini Festival and the Verona Opera Festival. The Puccini Festival is set on the picturesque shores of the lovely hamlet of Torre del Lago, a hop, skip and a jump from the villa where Puccini lived and composed for 30 years. The festival was founded to honour what some believe to have been the composer's final wish. Meanwhile, the Verona Opera Festival is held in the magnificent Arena de Verona, one of the world's largest open-air opera houses and best-preserved classical arenas. Steeped in history, the Verona Opera Festival has launched the careers of many artists, including the legendary Maria Callas. Reuner is a musician, educator and conductor with degrees from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and the University of Sydney. She's organised music tours to France, Germany, Italy, Spain and the UK and has studied the link between travel and its impact on creativity. Lovely to have you here today, Reuner. Why are these two festivals so special to you? Well, I was meandering through Europe, as you do, and um, I walked into the Verona uh, Piazza Bra not expecting anything and saw this enormous queue outside the arena. I was ignorant to the the summer festival at that point, but I quickly learned what they were lining up for. So I joined the queue and went to uh, Nabucco that evening. For me, uh, walking into the arena, it is um, opera on a massive scale, um, but more than that, you feel the history you feel a connectedness, I think, to what has been in the past. And uh, the Verona Arena really symbolises many things to many people. But I have to say, um, listening to the three gongs at the beginning, the traditions, and when I actually was sitting in there, they were um, playing, uh, tuning up, and then you have the candles happening, and it was just magical. These days, that doesn't happen for safety reasons. So the acoustics are sensational, and I was in the seat very high up the first time I visited. So I guess it was the unexpected to find something so wonderful for the for that particular festival. The Puccini Festival, on the other hand, I did know about, and I had visited Luca many occasions, but not during the summer time when the festival was on. So I made a specific journey to see the Puccini uh, Villa Museum and then uh, the opera. It's a more contained setting, it's smaller, but again, uh, sitting in the uh, evening light with the stars and with the backdrop of the lake, you have a real connection with Puccini and the land he loves so dearly. So there were two unique experiences for me. Because Puccini's villa is very close by, very isn't close it? by, yeah, very close by. You just w- literally walk five minutes, and they recalled and renamed where the theatre was, and it's now a whole park of facilities that's just recently been upgraded. When I was there, it was a theatre that was dismantled after the summer season, but it's now a permanent fixture there. Right, so he lived there for thirty years. Yes, in that in that hamlet of Torre de Laga, he was very, very passionate about that area. Um, and he 
he loved fishing and hunting, so he actually, that was one of the prerequisites to get as close as he could to the villa. And he found it a refuge because he actually um, felt the need to get back to the country quite often. And you know, there's numerous occasions when he was writing on, on, on his opera Tusca and he was in Milan and there's a letter saying to his sister, I'm, I really need to return to the home, Tora is ideal for me. So it was a really strong connection with the land and he only left um, due to the fact that pollution was starting to happen and it was only in the last four years of his life and he moved to Viareggio and those four years were not terribly happy because he had a fear of death for those last four years in his life. He was working on Turandot and articulated that he thought he would never finish it, which we know was in fact the truth. And of course, he had to go to Brussels to be operated on and he died in Brussels. So um, it was a reluctant move, but he still did did not sell the villa in Torre de Lago. And hence, it's there today. And when he did die, he stipulated that it was not to be changed at all. So that's now in the hands of his granddaughter, Simonetta. And when you walk through, because it is unchanged, you really do get a great sense of, of his life in that villa. Going back a bit, where was he born? He was born in Lucca in 1858 um, to a family of musicians. He was the last of a very long dynasty. In fact, the Puccinis had a monopoly on musical life in Lucca. It was almost a foregone conclusion that he would be a musician. Um, his father died when he was six and three years later he was sent to study um, as a chorister and organist in the San Martino Cathedral. His first teacher was his uncle and it wasn't a very successful relationship. He, his uncle thought he was fairly lazy actually. He then moved on to uh, a new teacher and this teacher was a, a former pupil of Puccini's. It was a better relationship. But still, I don't think we can call Puccini the, the model student. But the Puccinis had an uninterrupted connection with that San Martino Cathedral for over 124 years as, as organists and as choir masters. And Puccini himself did later become deputy organist at that venue. In his early days, he spent summers in, in the ancestral home in Celi, which is 20 kilometres out of um, Luca, but he started to slowly become attracted to opera. And he made this epic journey by foot from um, uh, from Luca to Pisa to see Verdi's Aida. Now, the story has it that he actually went to the railway station to catch a train. The trains were overcrowded. He panicked and he just needed to get there. So he attempted it by foot. That performance had a very deep impact on him and it really changed the compositional direction. Um, that where he was heading. And it inspired him, I think, to keep studying firstly at the Pacini, not Puccini, Pacini um, Institute, which is now called the Boccherini Institute, and then on to Milan. And when he went to Milan, he had Antonio Bazzini, who later became the director of the Milan Conservatorium as one of his teachers, and Ponchielli again. I don't think they always saw him as a model student. I think the irregularity of his work, which is interesting, I find, because that really was what was happening in his later life. His output was was quite slow and irregular at times due to a, a number of factors. But he um, 
In this final year, he entered a competition for a one-act opera, uh, Les Villis. It was unsuccessful for that competition. Uh, and it said that the manuscript was poorly attempted, not the content, but the it was almost illegible. But it, he later had it performed in Milan the, the, the following year. And two musical giants of the time were in that audience, and that's publisher Ricordi and uh, musician Boyotto. Boyotto was later probably uh, more famous as a librettist for Verdi's um, opera and Ponchielli's opera. But they were so impressed with his melodic inventiveness and his expansive use of the orchestra. And uh, Ricordi commissioned his second opera, Edgar, after that. And then he returned to Milan not long uh, because his mother died and I guess we move into a very different phase. He started a relationship with um, his lover, the married Elvira Bonturi. They escaped Luca with not very, um, very good circumstances, I guess. And they went to live in Monza outside of Milan, where his only son was born. Because when his career took off, it happened fairly quickly, didn't yes, it? Yes, and that was why the move to Torre appeared to be such a wonderful fit for him, because that was the first opera man in Lescaux. And it was the first one he'd written in Torre de Lago. Right, yeah. Uh, and then we had, and then then it took off quite quite quickly after that. And Tosca, from a financial point of view, were, gave him the financial means to actually purchase his first house and the villa because he was subletting rooms when he initially went to Torre de Lago. So that period um, really did inspire some of his much-loved operas. But uh, Torre de Lago... Um, again, when he first arrived in Torre del Lago, he just exclaimed, this is paradise. And for him, it was simply a dirt road going from Pisa to the lake, uh, little paths winding through for very small wooden huts. And photographs in the 1900s show that life had really not changed over centuries. We still had women um, pushing hay onto the carts, washing their clothes by the lake and cooking on out door burners. So it was quite a simple life when he first arrived. The only modernity really was the North-South Railway, which provided access to um, Pisa and Viareggio. But he stayed there for 30 years. Torre del Lago is now called Torre del Lago Puccini. His name is attached to the town and it, it was his refuge and his place of inspiration. Because later... A number of tragic events have stopped his writing in its tracks for a while. Yes, and his life really reads in many respects like an opera (laughs) itself. I mean, look, much has been said about Puccini and the women, both in his operas and in his life. You know, he carried out numerous affairs. Um, He himself described himself as being a hunter of uh, wild birds, of librettos and of beautiful women. He was quite handsome, um, a friendly temperament. But what I think we really need to know about Puccini, he was quite shy and um, reserved and had a tendency towards melancholy and probably we'd call that depression today. Um, And then, yes, from 1903, things really did unravel and he loved automobiles, boats, transatlantic travel, but it was his automobile crash that caused his first convalescence. Virtually the day after that, 
um, the husband of his lover died. I guess that wasn't tragic in one sense because it enabled him to marry her 10 months later. But in April, he had to employ a lawyer because uh, an ex-lover was blackmailing him. Then we moved to the next year in February where um, Butterfly premiered very unsuccessfully. Mm. And he was described as most as going into a suicidal despair at that point. And then we have Oracordi, the publisher, pushing him to, to do something more um, heroic and in-depth. Uh, uh, and he took a long time to select his librettis. Um, and so after Butterfly, there was a six-year fallow period of, of not writing anything. And he eventually got back around that 1910. That was when La Fonchula del West was written. But his creative process really stagnated through all of that period. And the worst of all was that his um, wife became extraordinarily jealous. I think she had cause to be so. (laughs) (laughs) But she um, accused the 21-year-old servant girl of having an affair with Puccini. The servant girl uh, really found that overwhelming, took a dose of um, sleeping pills, died. Uh, Elvira was sentenced to five months in jail. Puccini paid the family out so she didn't end up in jail. But that affair really um, hampered but he didn't have an affair with her either. He didn't. Did he? No. She, no, it was found that on an autopsy showed that she was a virgin. So it was, um, you know, probably one of the affairs that yeah. he didn't have. Very sad. That is sad. Mm. So tell us about the festival. I mean, there's a story that it was one of his final yes. wishes. Well, that's right. And, and you know, we look at two, two ways. We have in 1930 an opera was staged by his um, friend and uh, librettist Sforzano. He, it was said they were having a conversation and Puccini said that he took the boat out often um, to go shooting, but one day he would like to hear his opera performed in the open air. And it's believed that comment was that he was wanting a vision of the lake providing a natural stage for his opera. However, his granddaughter Simonetta says that Puccini went to Torre del Lago for tranquility and a beautiful environment and he would not have made that claim. Nevertheless, in 1930, we had the beginnings of a festival. So even from my perspective, even if it wasn't Puccini's wish, I... I think we can still see the sense of of him there with the land that he loves so dearly as we sit in that open theatre. So who's to know, really? Who's to know? Mm. So moving to Verona, mm-hmm. so that arena, now that dates right back to the first century. Correct. So can you tell us a bit about its history? Yes, well, it's one of the largest um, and best-preserved uh, Roman arenas. It was... Third, after the Colosseum and the Amphitheatre in Capua near uh, Naples. It, it was a be- it's a beautiful arena and the pink marble, pink and white marble, was taken um, from Valpolicella near Verona. But an earthquake in 1117 did destroy the outer ring, so today you only see a portion of the outer ring. It originally um, could contain 30,000 spectators, if you go to a musical performance these days, they have reduced it down to 15,000 for safety reasons. 
but it played host to a myriad of events, you know, from the lubi, which are the public games, to circus acts, to duels, to um, executions. And it, it continued in that vein for some years. But we have um, the first attempt to really show opera was back in the Renaissance. It wasn't successful. And then again um, in the 1850s. But the first major uh, opera performance was in 1913. And that was due to Italian tenor Zenatello. And um, he, he wanted to get opera happening again. And it was in 1913, the first opera, of course, the centenary of Verdi's birth. And interestingly enough, in that audience, you had Puccini, um, which, yeah, which is a lovely yeah. connection. Lovely connection, yes, yeah. and and yeah. Mascagni. And you know, every first opera of the festival is always Aida, and that has been continuous from 1913, apart from the two world wars, where it where it did stop. So, how did um, Maria Callas develop a relationship? Though? Yes, well, she was due to play Turandot in Chicago and they were reopening the opera house, but the company collapsed before the opening of the opera house. And her friend uh, Nicola Rossi Lemini knew that Serafin was looking for a dramatic so- uh, soprano to be cast in La Gioconda. So he went to Zenatelli and told him about Maria Callas, and that's how she got the audition. It's said that uh, he was so excited by her audition that he jumped up and joined her in Act 4, the duet. I don't know if that's fact. But uh, then things moved quickly. So that was happened in 1946 and she came to Verona in 1947. And that's where she met her husband, um, Menengini, and they married... Uh, you know, three years later in 1949. So her ties to Verona was obviously her debut. Then she married in Verona in the Church of Filippini. He was devoted to her and gave up his his own livelihood and family business and focused on her career entirely. So she has a lot to be grateful for. Um, Of course, their marriage collapsed in 1959, but... um, Without him, I don't think she probably would have have been as successful because he put a great deal of effort into that. Um, So the other connections, I guess, they lived on the outskirts of Verona in Zervio and they had some vacations in Sermioni, which is on Lake Garda, just a short distance from Verona. And she continued to perform in Verona between 1947 to 1954 And just recently, in 2017, there was a bronze statue uh, unveiled in the Verona arena to to, uh, recognise her contribution. So Seraphine became a a major influence. A major influence, yes. It was interesting. After her debut in Verona, she heard nothing from Seraphine for for a while, and I think she was... Uh, uh, as you would be disappointed with that. But he later offered him, uh, her the role of Isolde in 1948 in Venice. And from that point, he was her mentor and supporter. Um, she says in interviews that she was very, very lucky to have worked with him, that she learned a great deal from him. And she said at one point she asked 
him about performing and acting in opera and he said, you want to know how to act in opera? All you need to do is listen to the music. And she said, I know exactly what you mean and believes today that that is one of her secrets to performance. He continued to support her um, in her 17 roles. Um, He recorded with her uh, with nine operas um, and two of them were Norma, two of those were Norma and um, Lucia. So he played in a significant role in her development. Tell us about that famous turning point <laughs> well, in her career. Well, it was monumental, really, and she was very fortunate again. Seraphin again played a part in that, but she was uh, to engage to sing the role of Brunhilde. Um, but at the time, um, Margarita Carosio fell ill and... Seraphin couldn't find a replacement, so he went to Callas and said, in six days, I want you to play the role of Elvira. Now, in Zeffirelli's words, he says what she did in Venice was uh, change, was truly remarkable. And he said, if you understand opera, you need to know what a remarkable achievement that was. So her initial foray into the bel canto repertoire changed the course of her career entirely. It reawakened an interest in the long-neglected operas of Bellini, Donizetti and Rossini. And this post-war revival of the bel canto operas set her apart and actually set the standard for singers who followed, like Sutherland and Cabelli. So it was a huge moment in her life. Interestingly, up until 1951, she had performed in all the Italian theatres apart from La Scala, She was able to do that in 1951 and really from that point in the 50s, that was her artistic home. Callas was one of the most renowned and influential opera singers of the 20th century. Many critics praised her bel canto technique, wide-ranging voice and dramatic interpretations. She was almost immortal, an embodiment of the art of opera and was for singing what Toscanini was for conducting. As it is a tradition to consider before and after Toscanini, so, according to Zeffirelli, opera has before and after Callas. Lovely, thanks so much. Thank you. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.